We have just finished up our last section, the Farewell to the Faithful. That's what we titled this Farewell Discourse. And now we're moving on from Jesus' words to his disciples to this next section where we see the arrest, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Christ for his disciples. And we've titled this next section, Behold Your King. After the words of Pilate in chapter 19... They're just dripping with deeper significance because in his death and resurrection, we have the greatest picture of the glory of King Jesus. And today we're specifically going to see his glory through the way he's contrasted with Peter, who denies Christ. And before we go to God's word, would you please join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things out of your word. Incline our heart to your testimonies and not to the things of this world. Turn our eyes from looking at worthless things, spending our life on worthless things, And give us life in your ways and in your Son. I pray that we would see him clearly today in these pages. Would he be glorified and would we be changed? We pray all of this in his name. Amen. I am certain that I am going to get a lot of flack for this next illustration. Uh, First and foremost, coming from my good friend, Pastor Mike Craig. Uh, But one of the greatest examples of denial is found in the classic book, Sense and Sensibility. Yes, I said it. In the book, Marianne Dashwood is this young, impressionable woman, and she falls in love with this handsome and winsome character called John Willoughby. And their love is honestly kind of like over the top. It's a bit exaggerated. But they're expected to soon be married, and they're just inseparable until all of a sudden, one day, without warning, without explanation, Willoughby leaves for London. And Marianne doesn't know this, but Willoughby has a gambling problem, and he is in a massive amount of debt, and he needs to marry someone wealthy so that he can pay it all off. So months later, Marianne travels to London and she sees this Willoughby, who she thought she was going to be marrying, with this wealthy heiress. And she calls out to him, but he treats her with coldness and indifference. And she says, Willoughby, what is the meaning of this? Have you not received my letters? And he's clearly conflicted because he did care about Marianne, but he can't let this wealthy heiress know that. And so he shrugs it off. And the next day, he writes to Marianne and basically says, I'm sorry you got the impression that I felt anything more than respect and admiration for you. Surely, you see, that's impossible because my affections lie with someone else, and we are soon to be married. Jane Austen writes about this letter. Every line was an insult and proclaimed its writer to be deep in hardened villainy. I love Jane Austen. She's a great writer. But if you've read, if you've read the book, 
you know this is one of the most shocking and infuriating moments because Marianne has demonstrated this unwavering character and loyalty to Willoughby, but he responds to that with this statement that you mean nothing to me. And similarly today, Jesus demonstrates his love and care for his disciples in the face of terrible pain and suffering, and yet Peter returns all of this with the declaration that Jesus means nothing to him. The denial is shocking and infuriating and sobering. It's sobering because Peter's the most ardent follower of Christ. And in this story, he learns there's a big difference between courage for a fight with swords, a physical fight, and there's a big difference in that and courage for the spiritual fight, not to deny Christ. And in this, we're reminded that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We can all say passionately with Peter in chapter 13, I will lay down my life for you. But we got to remember, apart from Christ and his spirit, we are much more like Peter in chapter 18 saying, I am not his disciple. This passage shows Peter's weakness and unwillingness to even be identified with Christ, but it uniquely contrasts that with Jesus' power and his willingness to be taken to die for us. We're all tempted to drift from Christ, but I pray this passage will cause you to abide in Christ and stand with him. We can all tune out this repetitive message of the glory of Christ, but I pray that today we will see it fresh as you see the divine Messiah who drank the cup of God's wrath for us. And instead of giving you some points up front, we're just going to work straight through this story and then come to the application at the end to stand with Jesus and stand in awe of Jesus. And as we go, I want you to be asking yourself as we read through this story, why should we stand with Jesus and why should we stand in awe of him? So again, if you haven't already done it, please open up your Bibles to John chapter 18. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Lakeside, hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, that is, all of the farewell discourse that we just went through, when he had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew this place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So let's stop here. We, we learn here that Jesus had rhythms and habits that he did with his disciples. He regularly went to this garden, and in, this face, in the face of impending death, which he knows is coming, he does not flee, but he continues with his regular habits and rhythms to go to this garden. From the other Gospels, we know this is the Garden of Gethsemane, which is just outside of Jerusalem. And Judas uses his intimate knowledge of Jesus and his habits to betray him. He's not like the one in charge of this 
soldier, this band of soldiers. Instead, he's more like the hound dog at the front of the hunting party. And the group is made up of some officials from the Pharisees. They were likely a temple guard of some sort. And then a band of Roman soldiers. These bands of soldiers could be up to 600 soldiers strong. They're probably not all there, but still, this is a very large group of Roman and Jewish soldiers. And these 12 men wouldn't have stood a chance. They would have been helpless in comparison, or so you would think. Look down at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to him, said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed them, was standing with them. And although Judas' kiss is not recorded here, I think that's a really telling phrase, that he is standing with the arresting officers and soldiers. He does not go and stand with Jesus and with the disciples. He's standing with these arresting officers. And look at verse 6. When Jesus said to them, Judas and all those soldiers, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. In these sections, I want you to notice how Jesus is in control of everything. He doesn't run, but he comes out to meet this group of soldiers. He initiates the conversation, and most telling of all, he knocks them down with a few words. And as you might see in your footnote there in your Bible, when, he, when they say they're looking for Jesus of Nazareth and he responds uh, to it, it's literally in Greek the words, I am. Jesus has done this time and again in the Gospel of John. Like a great author, he's able to use phrases for more than one purpose. He is affirming he is Jesus of Nazareth, but he's also affirming that he is God by using the divine name found in Exodus 3, where the Lord says, I am who I am. Say to Israel, I am has sent you. Jesus gives this beautiful response with a single phrase. He is claiming to be truly man, Jesus of Nazareth, and at the same time claiming to be truly God. He is, I am, Yahweh, the eternal, self-sufficient, unchanging God. And it's at this declaration of his true identity as the God-man that Jesus just knocks down Judas and this large group of soldiers. Sometimes you'll read they just tripped and fell back. I think that's, like, ridiculous. They're hardened They're experienced soldiers, and they all tripped at the same time. No, it's clear. Jesus knocks them down by the power of his voice. What a display of the power of Jesus. And and that's why we read the psalm we did this morning. Remember the power of the voice of the Lord. Uh, The psalm said, the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness and it strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. So let there be no mistake here. Jesus is in total control. 
We're going to read that high priests and governors are going to send Jesus places. He's going to be bound. But let's be clear. John 10.18 is true where Jesus says, Jesus lays his life down. No one takes it from him. But he lays it down of his own accord. He is choosing this. And look down again at verse 7. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And I think we all have to imagine with a lot more uncertainty and fear, they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Once again, I think it's telling that Jesus is the one giving commands here. (laughs) And he does this because he wants to preserve his disciples. It would have been expected that they would have been captured and killed with Jesus. Again and again in the Gospel of John, he's talked about how he will keep his disciples. And by keeping them physically from death, he's demonstrating how he is able to keep them safe into eternity and safe from the evil one. And so, brothers and sisters here today, this is important as we are about to read about this sobering denial of Jesus. We can all fear, could that be me? And I would just say, Christian, if you've repented and put your faith in Jesus, you can trust in Jesus. Your hope of endurance does not lie in your own strength, it lies in Jesus, the good shepherd who can defeat armies with a word, who cares for his own till the very end. Jesus is the one who said he will keep you, and he is faithful and true and able to do it. So trust in him. But I think we should also hear this sobering warning of John 18, and let this next section drive you to dependence and love for Christ. Because in John 18, Peter does not like where this is going. Jesus has just worked to protect his disciples, but Peter is about to complicate matters again. It's a typical Peter move. He works against Jesus and shows he has a totally different agenda for the night. Look down at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? You remember how big this band of soldiers is? Peter's actions are kind of absurd here. There is no way this group of 12 is fighting their way out of this with swords. But eager Peter draws his sword and cuts off this servant's ear, which is what it looks like when you have an inexperienced fisherman try to kill someone. I mean, you don't cut somebody's ear off by just waving a sword around and saying, stay back, stay back. No, he's clearly going for the kill. He's trying to kill this man and cuts off his ear. And unfortunately for Peter, this is going to come back to bite him because later on this night, he's going to meet Malchus's relatives. 
which is awkward and unsettling. <laughs> yeah. But Jesus turns and rebukes Peter. Jesus is not interested in fighting his way out of this. Instead, he is willingly submitting to his father's plan. He says, shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? And this cup language is used all throughout the Old Testament. It's used for the cup of God's wrath. You can see that in Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 25, if you want to look it up later. This cup is a cup of wrath. And notice, it's from the Father. So why would Jesus need to drink this? John gives us a clue in verse 14 when he points back to this statement that it would be better for one man to die for the people. This is at the heart of the gospel. Jesus drinks the cup of God's wrath for the people. It's clearly seen in Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. It's on the screen. Talking about Jesus, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and his, by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And listen to this. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And later in the New Testament, John writes this again in 1 John 4.10, where he says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means wrath-bearing sacrifice. This is just what we've been talking about. We know the love of God because Jesus, the Son of God, bears the wrath of God on our behalf. And if you are here today and you have not trusted in Jesus You need to hear again the purpose of John in chapter 20. He says these words, So that you would believe that Jesus really is the divine Savior, and by believing, you will have life in his name. This is the good news, that you do not have to drink the cup of God's wrath. For all who trust in Jesus, their punishment has been entirely taken by Christ. But if you do not believe in Christ, John 3.17 says you are condemned already, meaning right now you stand under his judgment. So today, as you see the glory of Jesus and hear the good news that he drank the cup for you, turn from your sins and put your faith completely in him. And any of our Lakeside members would love to talk to you more about that. Grab one of them, grab me afterwards, but don't reject this precious gift that Jesus offers. And I'd even speak to the believers in here today. This good news of Christ is not just something we believe and then move on from. No, it should be held on to throughout our life. And I want to talk specifically to those of you who are weighed down with guilt and condemnation. Believer, why are you living as if continually the Father is displeased with you, as if you are under his judgment? Believer, Christ has completely drunk the cup of God's wrath for you. 
So stop trying to pick it up and drink it for yourself. There's no more wrath for you to bear. You are no longer an enemy, but a child. So rest in the finished work of Christ and rejoice in it. He drunk the cup of God's wrath for you. Now let's continue to look at Jesus' glory and love on display. Look down again at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews, again, that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. I do need to make a clarifying statement here to avoid confusion. Annas was the high priest before Caiaphas, and he still would have been the high priest if the Romans hadn't interfered. And so he is still regularly referred to as the high priest, and pretty much all of the unspecified references to a high priest refer to him instead of to Caiaphas. And I hope that helps, because it does get a little confusing. But again, I want you to see in, in verse 12, it says, Jesus was bound and led away. And again, I just don't want us to lose sight of the power that we saw of Christ. Please remember that this binding and leading is just ridiculous. I mean, he just knocked them over with a word. They might as well tie his hands with spaghetti for all the good it would do. No one is making Jesus do anything. He is choosing this willingly. But in verses 16 and 17, John's narrative kind of turns to track Peter, who followed Jesus to Annas' house, and another disciple, probably John, has to let Peter in and look down at verse 17 to see what happens. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So here is Peter's first denial. And this should remind us of the conversation they had in John 13, 36 through 38, where Jesus says, Where I am going, talking about the cross, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And every word of the Lord proves true. And this is just the beginning for Peter. But I think we should be sympathetic. I mean, this is a very, as I said earlier, awkward situation for Peter to be in. His master is bound and interrogated. He doesn't know these people. And he's just tried to kill one of their fellow servants. And later on, we're going to see in verse 19, the high priest is specifically asking, not just about Jesus' teaching, but about his disciples. So it would have been tense for a disciple to be there, which is maybe why this question is asked in the negative. It's kind of a disdainful question. You're not with Jesus, are you? Like, surely you would not be caught dead with this guy, right? But Peter denies any connection to Jesus. And I think verse 18 is telling. John says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. 
Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Do you remember the last person who was standing with the servants and officers from the Pharisees and the high priest? Judas. So instead of standing with his master, Peter begins to look more like Judas, going and standing with the people who just arrested his master. And now John is going to kind of cut back to Jesus. Look at verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temples where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. I think all attacks and insults are difficult to handle, but especially those that are unjust and coming from someone far inferior. I've seen this all the time when I go to a basketball court and I see like a really talented player shooting around and then some kid comes up and just starts taunting him and talking trash about how terrible this player is. And typically, the player grabs the ball, looks at the kid, says, you and me, right now, let's play. We're going to see who can really play basketball. The player can't help but put the kid in his place because first, I mean, he's wrong. And second, the kid's skill level is so far beneath his that he needs to be taught a lesson. And how much more Would Jesus have been tempted to feel this way with the high priest and the officials? They are in the wrong. And they're so far beneath Jesus in power and holiness and wisdom. So you're just expecting Jesus again to knock him over with a word and vindicate himself. But he doesn't. He did that in the garden to protect his disciples, but he doesn't do it here. He responds simply by calling out their injustice and leaving it at that. Again, he is drinking the cup of wrath from the Father that he has given him. And he's showing these unjust officers and judges that he has nothing to hide. He has only spoken the truth, and he has done it in the open, in the public, which is so different, if you think about it, from somebody else in our story. And that's why John cuts back to look at Peter in in verse 25. Look down there with me. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it again and said, I am not one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. Again, Jesus' words prove true. Nobody would have guessed that Peter would cower in front of a group of servants, but he does. And although this narrative doesn't use some of the emotional language that the other Gospels do, I don't want us to miss the weight of what Peter is doing here. It's much like what Willoughby did with Mary Ann. He denies their history. 
He denies any love or deep affection or relationship with Jesus. One of the children's books that I read to my boys, they uh, record this story, and this is what they say Peter told these people. He said, Jesus is not my friend. And I think that's a simple way at getting at the heart of what Peter is saying here. He's telling these people, Jesus is not my friend. He's not my master. He's not my teacher. He means nothing to me. And he doesn't just say it once or twice. He says it three times. And I believe John gives us this straightforward reading. So first, we don't lose sight. This story is still ultimately about Jesus. Let's not forget that. But also, so we'd see the contrast between the two. Do you notice how John has gone back and forth between Peter and Jesus? It's like the focus keeps shifting back and forth between the two because he's holding up these two characters side by side so that we could look and see the difference. Jesus, he is in perfect control of himself and the situation. Peter is spiraling. Jesus has the power to free himself but chooses to submit to the Father's will. Peter does not have the power to free himself, but all the same, he fights and lashes out at the soldiers. Jesus is questioned by the high priest. Peter is questioned by a simple servant girl. Jesus openly speaks the truth. Peter lies and tries to hide. Jesus protects his disciples and all who trust in him by drinking the cup of God's wrath and placing himself in harm's way. Peter is afraid of harm, and so he denies his master. At all costs, Jesus thought of us. Peter was afraid of the cost, and so he thought only of himself. And throughout this narrative, Jesus' unique power and willingness to die has been seen, all while being contrasted with the weakness and unwillingness of Peter to even be identified with Christ. And the main takeaway from this passage, the main point, the divine Messiah chose to die for us so we should stand with him and stand in awe of him. So our first application point at the end of this, stand with Jesus. Because of who he is and what he has done, Jesus calls for total allegiance Peter doesn't get a pass on this because it was a tough situation. No, Jesus calls Peter and anyone who would come after him to deny themselves and take up their cross. So we, we should stand with Jesus no matter what. Instead of standing with the world and denying him like Peter did. And that denial is a warning for us. I think Peter's denial actually began in the garden not in the courtyard. Peter demonstrated he can get behind Jesus if he told him to fight. It's not simply that Peter lacks courage. No, it's that Jesus isn't aligning with Peter's desires and vision for him. When Jesus tells Peter to put his sword away, that he is choosing to die for the people, that's the beginning of Peter's denial because that's not what Peter signed up for. He would happily die on the battlefield, but he's not going to die the humiliating death of the cross. And I think we all need to ask ourselves, am I willing to accept Jesus as he is truly revealed in the scriptures and not just as I want him to be? It's often said 
That's not my Jesus. Well, if your Jesus is anything other than what is clearly revealed in the scriptures, then you have a false Jesus. Let your beliefs of Jesus align with the scriptures, not your personal desires like Peter here. What you find in the scriptures about Jesus and what he commands of his disciples may offend you. His his demands may offend you. His grace may disgust you. His wrath may disturb you. But are you willing to accept him as he is and not as you want him to be? This is the beginning of the issue for Peter. This is what it looked like for him to fail to abide in Christ. He rejected who Jesus has revealed himself to be and rejected what he called his followers to do. And so he distanced himself from Christ. So believer, our application is clear. Be regularly meditating on the word of God and let that shape your view of Jesus instead of letting your desires shape your view of Christ. And maybe if someone comes to you and says something about Jesus that doesn't sit well with you, have the humility to go to God's word to find out if it's true or false instead of just writing it off because you don't like it. Maybe, maybe it could be that our desires are driving more of what we think about Jesus than God's word. May we not be like Peter, who is only willing to accept Jesus as a conquering warrior and not as a suffering savior. So humbly and willingly accept Jesus as he truly is, but also demonstrate loyalty to Jesus no matter what. Peter feared the cost, and so he stood with Jesus' enemies instead of standing with Jesus himself. And so ask yourself, what would cause me to deny Jesus? Think through your last week for any moments where you were ambivalent towards Jesus. What are the situations where you minimize your connection and affection for Christ? These moments are revealing idols in our hearts. They have taken the place on the throne of our heart instead of letting Jesus take that place. Are you wanting something so badly you're willing to throw your relationship with Jesus out the window to get it? It could be popularity, comfort, approval, family, friends, success. Or maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're trying to avoid something. The threat of ridicule or discomfort, or even like Peter, the threat of death. Do you fear these so much that you would deny Christ to avoid them? I know all of you are not going around saying, I don't know Jesus, I don't care about Jesus, but I want you to hear this. Anything that causes you to stray from abiding in Christ, if left unchecked, will eventually lead you to denying Christ. These idols and sinful fears will lead you to a place you don't want to go. I mean, think about how terribly low Peter was brought. Jesus is literally in the act of laying down his life for Peter, all while Peter is denying even knowing him. That's where our idols lead. So cast them out of your heart. Cast them out by repentance by confessing them to the Lord and turning from them. Maybe an additional way to cast them out is to starve them out. 
We can fight these by cutting out anything in our life that feeds or cultivates these sinful desires. If you struggle with whatever it might be, envy of other people's homes, maybe you need to go and delete the Zillow app off your phone. If you, if you struggle with gluttony or drunkenness, you should think there are some restaurants I'm not going to go to because they push me towards those desires. Don't feed these idols that are leading you away from abiding in Christ and leading you towards denying him. Don't do that. And so I would just say again, stand with or abide in Christ by casting out idols, by accepting Jesus as he truly is. But we shouldn't just believe in Jesus. Our second application is we should stand in awe of Jesus. This passage isn't about Peter. Again, it's not intended to make you think, wow, Peter was such a failure. No, it's intended to lead you to fall at Jesus' feet and worship and say, what a savior. The real and honest depiction of Peter causes the glory of Christ to shine through. He died in our place. He drank the cup of wrath that we deserved. He perfectly obeyed the Father. I mean, again and again in the Gospel of John, Jesus has mentioned the oneness he has with the Father, how he always does the will of the Father. But I think you and I both know words like that are proven or disproven when we are asked to do something painful or difficult. And there could be nothing more painful or difficult than drinking the cup of wrath from the Father. Jesus isn't all talk. As the perfect God-man, he demonstrates the reality of his love and obedience to the Father. And he does it all while having the power to avoid it. These men couldn't make Jesus do anything. He chooses this path, all while being betrayed and denied by his closest followers. So look and see Jesus, our glorious Savior. His glory is seen not in flexing his strength, but on humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. What a Savior. This is why we sing his praises every week, why we remember his sacrifice every week at the table. The cross shows us the eternal and incomparable glory of Christ, so stand in awe of him. To say the same thing is no trouble for me, and it's safer for you. We so often want to move on to something different, something new. But let us keep coming back to the same theme, back to the glory of our Savior, who willingly chose to die and bear the wrath of God for us. And in conclusion, I think one of the clearest ways we see the glory of Christ is through his ability to transform sinners. Many of you could leave a sermon like this discouraged because you feel like Peter. You are fearful, and and sometimes you don't stand with Christ. The good news is that it's not that you have to have it in yourself to change and be more courageous. No, the good news is Christ can change us. And Peter is an excellent example. 
The next time we hear Peter in public is in Acts 2, verse 36. He says in front of this large and likely hostile crowd, he stands up and says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's a man who's been changed who has seen and accepted Jesus for who he is, who is standing with Jesus no matter what. That is the difference that comes with the resurrection and the Spirit inside of us. And that's the change that's available to you too. Yes, this sermon is a warning to you not to deny Christ. But don't leave this sermon obsessively and anxiously asking, what would I do in this situation No, let this sermon lead you to come to Christ, the Savior who can change you. Abide in Christ, abide in his word, and you will bear much fruit. Pray with me. Jesus, there's no one like you, our Savior. Who else would drink the cup of of wrath for us that we deserved, that we earned. Forgive us. You have laid down your life for us, and we often deny you. We minimize our affection for you. Help us see those areas and confess them and turn from them, turn from the idols that lead us away from you and lead us to deny.